0: Reporting on scientific topics differs from other beats of journalism. Journalism is a discipline driven by the stories of people, whereas science is driven by experiments and facts devoid of emotion.
1: These clickbait articles are probably the biggest detriment to science journalism, right? Um, And it leads to this accurate... this. you know, this accusation of false news and misinformation and misleading reporting. That's why it's really
2: important to fact-check. And fact-checking is such an important part of journalism that I feel like is not emphasized enough. Because the whole purpose of journalism is to relay information to the public. And what purpose is in relaying information if it's not accurate?
3: It's very important for me to be visual. So, you know, complex ideas. You saw it with COVID. When people report on COVID, we wanted graphs. We wanted analytics. We wanted data that was moving and uh, changing with time.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Science Journal episode. I am your host, Iman Bohr, and I am joined by my co-host, Asman Akib. Hi, everyone. Uh, So science is one of the most important channels of knowledge. It gives the world explanations, factual information, and assistance through extensive research. Science guides our everyday life, and it is with no doubt a crucial part of humanity as it solves great mysteries of our universe. Topics related to science are equally important. For instance, ever since the outbreak of COVID-19, people around the globe have been paying close attention to the scientific news, which raises a question about the importance of science journalism in our contemporary world. Reporting on scientific topics differs from other beats of journalism. Journalism is a discipline driven by the stories of people, whereas science is driven by experiments and facts devoid of emotion. So, in this episode, we will explore how science journalism takes science and changes its perception among the public from a collection of facts to a story that affects our daily lives. So, how is science journalism different from other beats of journalism? Join us in this discussion with two journalists to find out. Um, We are joined by a prolific documentary filmmaker and journalist and professor of science and health journalism at Northwestern University in Qatar, Christina Passion. Thank you, Professor Passion, for being here
1: today with us. Uh, My pleasure to join you. Thank you for having me.
0: So uh, we have some questions for you today. So first off, I really want to ask you this question. So as an expert in science and health journalism, how do you think science should be communicated to the public?
1: So science should be communicated to the public the same as any other news story in, in many respects. You wanna make it accessible, easily digestible for the news consumer and actually enjoyable to read. So if you're not um, be able to turn science into something that you know readers find pleasurable to actually sit down, take the time to consume either in documentary form or on print, then you're not doing your job properly, okay? Like science should be fun. That's the biggest thing we need to um, overcome when it comes to science reporting.
3: I
2: agree. Thank you, Professor. And thank you, Iman, for introducing the topic. Uh, So, Professor, you mentioned how we have to make it a fun story. What do you think are some ways to make science a fun story?
1: You make a science story fun, And by fun, I mean accessible and understandable by actually showing the reader how it relates to their daily life. Okay. So this is true for any sort of science based story. It could be something as obscure as finding dinosaur fossils in a remote island, okay, to how diabetes um, is impacted in a person's soda drinking consumption. Okay. (laughs) Very disparate topics, but they do have relevance to people's lives. Um, And in terms of, Like the dinosaur story, for instance, that story can be easily relatable to a reader way by bringing up great nostalgic memories of their childhood when everybody's really interested in dinosaurs and how exciting that could be. To also how, you know... Um, these fossils might actually show evidence of climate change, right? Stuff related to I- issues that human society is undergoing now, especially in terms of like future apocalypses. Okay, um, as, and that, those could be really heavy topics, right? So these are serious stories, um, but that's w- but that's what really is important to so show. How do these t- issues actually affect my daily life? Can it affect my daily life? And if so, what are the solutions in order to improve my life or to avoid negative consequences, etc.? So that's what I mean in terms of making science digestible and fun. Not fun in the silly, goofy kind of word sense, but in the easily understandable and like an awe-inspiring moment where like, yes, this is practical to my existence.
2: Thank you so much for clarifying that, that helps a lot. Um, so I wanted to ask something because you mentioned how science is as serious as any other story. So um, how does science and health journalism differ from other beats of journalism?
1: Well, like every other beat reporting topic, it's important and it's imperative for a journalist to do their research <laughs> before investigating a topic, right? Before going off and interviewing people and then writing the story, of course. So that means really doing um, your proper reading up of the issue, okay? so. This is where it differs, though, from, like, other kinds of journalism. It's not just about finding all the previous media about a specific topic, right? You're not doing your job as a science journalist if, for instance, you're doing a story about dinosaur fossils, right? If you just read, you know, what Scientific American recently published two years ago or what the BBC wrote a month ago or what this journalist or what this pop culture reference talked about dinosaurs, right? That's not doing your job. So... You know, this isn't true for every beat, but it is true for science journalism. You really need to go to scientific expert sources. So yes, that means people with PhDs, (laughs) professors in academia, um, actual scientists working in the field and in the labs, okay? And you start by doing that is by finding those academic studies um, published in peer-reviewed academic journals, okay? And those can be very, very complicated, um, dense to read, okay? You'll encounter a lot of jargon, but it's your job as that journalist to parse through that jar- that jargon, to parse through that academic journal and really make it understandable for yourself. But then also to take that jargon, to take those big words, right, <laughs> and make it easily comprehensible for a layperson reading this you know, two weeks later in the local newspaper or in a podcast session like this, okay? So that's that's where it differs, is you really are taking, you're really diving head in first to peer-reviewed academic research, trying to make sense of it of yourself, um, it's also really important not to just trust what an academic study says when it is published, okay? Because those can be full of errors. They can be fraudulent, you know, sometimes. So it's important for you to verify information that's published because even if it's peer-reviewed, <laughs> there's been lots of cases where um, fraud has been committed, right? Or things have been like basic statistical mathematic calculations have been off and it still happened to get past all the peer reviewers. So it's really your job to go through each line and make sure you understand it and there's information and Evan's there to back it up. So it's a long process, okay? Um, You don't have to be a science major to do this, of course. Lots of journalists who become science reporters didn't major in science-based fields. Um, They just took the time to really learn it on the job, and that's fine. You're going to make mistakes, of course, like when any other beat reporting, but the more you do it, the more you practice, and the more you read, 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 the better you're going to get at it. So that's how I would say it differs.
2: We are also joined today by journalist and lecturer at Northwestern University in Qatar, Sherazat, safla Gafur. Her work has appeared on Euronews, Al Jazeera, Channel 5, TRT World, and ENCA. Thank you so much, Professor Shaz, for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much.
3: I'm, I'm actually very grateful that you have me today. Thank you so much. Could you please introduce yourself? Yeah, so as you said, I've been a journalist for over 20 years. I've covered all kinds of topics, uh, you know, five news stations, four countries, and all kinds of topics, which include science journalism, too. What are some of the challenges of reporting on science? I think uh, there are quite a few, to be honest. Um, You know, the, the main thing I would say is most of the stories go untold because, for example, the science professors themselves, they're often working on very exciting science projects, but they are the ones trying to inform the media, which is difficult for them because they aren't, uh, you know, media liaisons officers, they're just professors. And then a lot of the time i found, and especially in this region, if they rely on their media departments, Not all organizations have media departments, by the way, like not all organizations that convey science projects. Uh, We experienced a lot of red tape, a lot of checks, you know, to get into the research centers. It's very time consuming and uh, not all media has time on their hands to deal with this. If a deadline is missed, a story is missed. And I think that especially with uh, science journalism, they don't understand the sense of urgency that we need in the news Uh, industry. Uh, For example, I did this story on zebrafish at uh, Sidra, and it was a very, very fascinating project, but it wasn't a story that could have fit into any of our themed episodes that we were running at the time for Euronews. Uh, Because many of these stories are also attached to larger organizations. I think that sometimes international media is hesitant to cover them, and they're just worried it comes across as free advertising. Also, I I feel that many of the PR companies or media departments will insist that us as news reporters use their angle and the people they want us to interview for the science stories. And not all of these spokespeople are ideal, you know, for on-camera appearances or they don't have as much background as the professors themselves. So I think that some of the challenges are on behalf of the organizations and whoever's conveying the story on science to, to appoint the, the correct people. And, you know, we might want to interview a director, but we also may want to interview the professor themselves, like I said, and a scientist who conducted the research. So we want the first-hand information. So you've
2: mentioned that it's mostly organizations who make these processes very long. How do you think organizations and
3: news outlets can make it easier for journalists to report on science? Um, I think definitely by, uh, they use PR companies a lot. But I think if we could have direct access as journalists, it's much easier for us. All the, cut all the red tape. We want to approach people directly to get the information. You know, our jobs are very hard. Um, one of the questions I think you said uh, earlier is like, how do you define science journalism? And basically, it's taking these complex scientific concepts and simplifying it to the public. And there's definitely this connection between scientists and journalists because we both have to do the research, we have to analyze our data and then report our findings to the public. So the way to do this and the most simplest way to do this is for us to be able to access exactly like the scientists and the professors need to. We need to access this research firsthand and quickly.
2: Okay, thank you so much. And what advice would you give to journalists reporting on science without necessarily having a scientific background? Because you mentioned that they have to do a lot of research. Um, So how do you think it can
3: be easier for them? I think definitely by taking their time. You know, this is an issue in the news industry. We're always meeting deadlines, so we don't always have this time on our hands. But there are, uh, you know, periods where sometimes a journalist, and especially if you're not a breaking news journalist, you have this downtime. And when you have the downtime, is the time for you to do your investigations, reach out to people, network, network with the right people, you know, go to universities, meet professors working on different projects, uh, try to meet scientists working on projects, and just you know, pick their brains, find out exactly what they're doing. And you as the journalists are responsible for finding the angle, not the scientists or the professors. So you need to look for that angle and find that point of the story that will relate to the public and resonate with the public.
2: And do you think that science stories are supposed to be treated as newsworthy, as time-sensitive? Because science as a process is very time-consuming. It takes decades, years on end. And treating it in journalism as a time-sensitive story, as a newsworthy story, can kind of distort the way we view science a little bit. So how can journalists um, make sure that science is thoroughly reported on in that sense?
3: Um, I think definitely, like I said, the research, this is important. So just taking time to do proper research. Again, like you say, when something's time sensitive, when you're looking for that newsworthy angle, you might be racing against the clock and that's when the errors are made or something is omitted, important information is omitted. So I think that in terms of like a journalist just dedicating their time and not telling you know, telling their news editor or their head of news, you know, this is a story that's going to require a little more time. Like, can I have this time or can this be a long-term project for me? And to closely liaise with the scientists or professors, whoever's working on the project, to get the real true uh, grit of it and not just touch the surface, because that's a lot of what journalists do tend to do. Like I said, we need to simplify the stories for the public. And that's when it can get dangerous in terms of leaving important information out, but Again at the same time we can't pack this with you know um, complex ideas that people can't relate to because then there's no appeal. At the end of the day I think a lot of people need to realize news is a product and there'll be people who disagree with me but at the end they are people who are funding our projects who are funding news organizations funding journalists and we need to make money for a lot of these news organizations. So if we don't have these stories go out when they're meant to go out or we don't have that exciting angle or that exciting theme for our episodes, like we did with Euronews, then nobody's going to watch. And if nobody's going to watch, then we're not going to make any money or we're not going to have advertising space. So this is also very an important aspect for us and something that we need to understand. And I think there needs to be that mutual understanding where a professor says, okay, I kind of know, or a scientist says, I kind of know what they're going for, they're looking for, and that's the part I'll focus on. Okay, thank you so much. So let's say that journalists have done their due
2: diligence and they got the time that they need to report on the story. What are some of the ways that they can simplify it to the public, as you mentioned?
3: I think what's really important is for a journalist to, you know, and for me especially, okay, even if you're a a print journalist or, you know, there's so many storytelling platforms out there now, you know, go onto social media or, you know, cross-promote these stories to get them out. But... It's very important for me to be visual. So, you know, complex ideas, you saw it with COVID, when people report on COVID, we wanted graphs, we wanted analytics, we wanted data that was moving and uh, changing with time and showing the developments. So something that's very graphic, like this is why people, graphic designers in news organizations are getting more jobs now. As we increase our reporting with science, We need to have these kinds of storytelling tools. So to change it, it's not just about showing a visual of a professor sitting at his computer, like doing some research or doing an experiment on something. There's more to it now. We need to show these uh, graphs and any sort of moving data that we can simplify to the public.
1: So that is with like any other storytelling endeavor, it's just making it easily relatable, right? So the way you do that in science is finding the real people who have lived that experience. Some stories might be more obscure or like difficult to do that, like the dinosaur story. Okay, maybe dinosaurs aren't affecting everybody's life every day. Um, Of course not, but relevant topics might be. So like we talked about climate change earlier, you know, climate change might've impacted these dinosaur deaths in some ways. You know, the fossil evidence might show that. It, there's lots of different ways you can explore that and make it digestible for the for the you know for the layman, um, but there's lots of science and health reporting that is directly relatable, okay, and directly impacts the average person. So from health to science, um, climate stories, um, psychology stories, what it could there's so many things, things related even to science and economics, right? The main thing to do to make it interesting for the reader is to find the actual human people who have experienced this, okay? So, if you're doing a story on... Oh, well, this is interesting. So, recently there was... Well, not recently, but there have been always, like, constantly... Studies being turned out claiming that like diet soda leads to dementia or leads to Alzheimer's or some kind of stuff, but really if you look at the data, it's all like correlation versus causation, right? And the evidence isn't really that strong to support any of these claims. Um, and the way you can make that interesting for the for the reader or the viewer is to find people <laughs> who think, oh, you know, you could. It, it depends on how you approach this, but it could be people who were really, in some ways passionate or addicted to their diet soda consumption, not addicted, but you know what I mean? Like they're just passionate about consuming diet soda. Um, and do these stories, like do these studies scare them? Do they think themselves possibly quite wrongly that they are starting to experience memory loss or anything due to the diet soda consumption? You can make it relevant because you know even misinformation impacts, um, reader's psychologies in many respects right and how they approach different science future science stories and future news about science so you know it's just about finding that human interest angle Mm -hmm. like with any news story
0: that's true. I'm, I'm, I'm just talking about like a personal experience. For example, I have health anxiety. So I honestly like if I have a headache, I'm like, oh, my God, that I literally have a brain tumor. And the reason why I think that way, I would like Google my symptoms and then Google would say or WebMD would say that those are probably like early signs of a brain tumor or early signs of a heart attack, for example. And unfortunately, anxiety um, has been increasing at a really dramatic uh uh, rate right now and a lot of people are, are suffering from health anxiety and there are a lot of clickbait kind of articles that just kind of like worsen this anxiety that a lot of people experience especially young people students right and I think a lot of these um, journalism sources per se are just benefiting from that and I think that's like like you said that's where the importance of uh, relevancy and accuracy comes to hand because before you start reading up anything relating to medicine for example or journalism or science you need to make sure that it's a good relevant uh source
1: and accurate as you say right because it does these clickbait articles are probably the biggest detriment to science journalism right um and it leads to this accurate this um you know this accusation of false news and misinformation and misleading reporting and science journalists a lot of an unexperienced science journalists, like do they do this stuff all the time, right? So um, you have journalists who are not dedicated to the science field, or you know they were just assigned randomly, or maybe they are and they've still been pressured by their employers to create these very sensationalist headlines that aren't accurate, right? And another big problem in science journalism is taking press releases directly from whoever's published the scientific study. Maybe it's from a university or whatever. And the problem is the scientists themselves aren't actually writing these press releases like the PR department of their organization is. And they're not necessarily skilled in the science, right? So they're just trying to make it interesting in their press release. Um, They might be making mistakes, but a lot of journalists end up like, almost printing that press release verbatim without doing any outside verification, finding opposing opinions from different scientists who might have found different results in their studies, etc. Or even just checking back to the original scientists and asking them, is this what you meant? Is this press release accurate? It's a big problem. And it does lead to that anxiety. And I can give you an example of something like that. So, um, you know, I recently had two children. And before that, in the lead up to like deciding to have children and everything, I had read an article in the New York Times, okay? And it was talking about what causes autism, right? And even at that point, there was pretty much um, consensus now that vaccines do not cause autism, right? But this journalist, a single line, like this journalist casually, flippantly mentions, maybe it's the aspartame in diet soda that's causing all these increases in autism no evidence right she this journalist I don't know if it was he or she I can't remember anymore but they didn't provide any evidence for that okay I mean it's just like a casual one word like three word one sentence statement and like for the next several years it really brought me a lot of anxiety because I drank diet soda right and I liked it and it was really hard for me to quit it not that I'm addicted to it but you know it's hard especially if you're trying to be healthier in other respects right um And I remember before we started, my husband and I started trying to have children for real, I tried to, like, give up diet soda for a year, and I always failed. And it, like, led me to, like, delaying and delaying having kids. And again, there's no evidence to suggest any of this. So even, like, you think you're being funny in, like, a personal essay that's a journalistic story, it can really create big problems. Like, it could really be detrimental to the average reader. So I would just really caution science journalists from from doing that, you really need to make sure that you have the facts lined up, right? There are studies that support this. If there are conflicting studies that show different results, you mention those, you try to get to the bottom of what the science is really showing, because otherwise, you're really screwing up people's brains. <laughs> you're screwing up their psych- you know, their their mental health.
0: I totally agree. I mean, I have uh, definitely felt under this false pretense that maybe, like, reading an article from the New York Times or the Guardian, like, that would automatically mean that the information they're providing is 100% accurate. That's just how I think. Now I'm a journalism student. Of course, now I know that I, sh- I know better and I know that I need to make sure that the information I'm receiving and that I'm consuming in my brain, it is accurate, right? But most people will now go on. They're going to like read something, for example, that Zoloft, which is an antidepressant, leads to um, can trigger, for example, panic attacks. That is completely not true. It does not uh, trigger panic attacks. In fact, it kind of helps people that have severe anxiety. But because I've read it, I think in either, was it, I think Vogue or the New York Times, I actually don't remember. I read it and I remember next time I went to my psychiatrist and I was freaking out about that. He was like, no, like you need to do proper research, probably go to WebMD. Don't just read, don't believe anything on the internet. Um, Is that even a reliable source? New York Times is not a scientific journal. Uh, journal, um, no, and those yeah.
1: journalists—they're fallible human beings. Like mm-hmm. they're going to make mistakes, even yeah. if they think they've verified everything. Yeah. Of course, mm-hmm. uh, I, other things. You know, other things. A big thing that is constantly ha- happening, and this is also goes to show, like, kind of like the sexism still in many media reporting. Um, there's always talk about how, you know, if you're over 40 or if you're close to 40, mid thirties to like early forties and you decide to have a child, watch out, right? They're going to have genetic abnormalities. There's going to be all these problems. Why are you even trying? Um, and yes, like for instance, Down syndrome. You're the rate that the rate of conception with um, of children with Down syndrome. You're, if you're an older woman, yeah, it increases. But even so, it's not that like astronomically high. So like one thing we talked about in my science journalism class, and forgive me because I don't remember the exact figures anymore. Okay, but um, there were headline reports that we read that talked about how if you're a woman who's age 40, you're 10 times more likely to have a child with Down syndrome. Yes, okay, that's a relative risk, right? Your increase, the increase rate is true, but look at the actual percentages, okay? If you actually do the math um, for women over 40, it's still only like 1%, (laughs) like a 1% chance. So there's a 99% chance of your woman age 40 who conceives, that child is not going to have Down syndrome. 10 times higher still than a woman in her 20s. Yes. So the woman in her 20s, you know, it's going to be like a fraction of a percentage. But still, like, it's not this, like, disaster zone for women who are age 40. So it's really important that clickbait headlines, right? The clickbait headline, if you're not properly contextualizing and explaining the difference between relative risk versus absolute risk, you're doing, you're not doing your job right.
0: hmm yeah, thank right. you for that. So, for those who don't know, um, me and my co-host Asma, we are taking a class with Professor Passion, and it's called Gendered Media Class. It's an absolute amazing class. I mean, I am constantly, constantly learning about all sorts of uh, problems in our society regarding um, gender biased. I mean, gender uh, gender based discrimination. Um, and since we're talking about that, what do you think about? like women's position in the science journalism realm. Of course, science is such a male-dominated field, but how about science journalism?
1: I don't have those numbers for you. I don't know what the percentage of women are doing science journalism. I I feel it would be more equal, right, than actual scientists' percentages, but, Yeah, I just because, you know, journalism in general is becoming much more of a female dominated industry. Right. And so I think I would naturally think that women are becoming more um, higher number of beat reporters in the science field, science journalism field as well. But I don't have those exact figures at all. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Um, But, you know, that's still in general, I always think women need to be more involved in science in general. And I know recently um, Anto helped to sponsor a great Hawar speaker series about picture a scientist, the documentary film, and then they invited female cuttery scientists to come speak, which I think is a great, great um, step in the right direction. In general, um, science journalism will only improve with more women's voices in it, right, covering these issues. Because just like I talked about with the Down syndrome example, right, of women conceiving at the age of 40, if you don't have women, well, you you would hope if you have actual women, like kind of re- doing researching those studies and writing those headlines, you might get better context and more accurate information, right? Um, but you know that's not always true all the time, of mm-hmm. course. Um, but yeah, I would just hope that the more w- women who join science journalism, the better the field will be.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. So I just want to circle back to science journalism, and you guys were mentioning clickbait in science journalism. Um, and sometimes when you look at organizations such as the Washington Post, New York Times, Al Jazeera, that have built a reputation, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are immune to error. As you mentioned, Professor, humans are fallible. And um, we also have to, like, as audience, you have when you're reading an article, you have to look for the study. You have to make sure it's a credible study. Even peer-reviewed articles can are prone to error as well. And so that's that's why it's really important to fact-check. And fact-checking is such an important part of journalism that I feel like is not emphasized enough because the whole purpose of journalism is to relay information to the public. And what purpose is in relaying information if it's not accurate? Um, so we wanted to ask you, what are some of the most important parts of training um, to report on science and health journalism? Well,
1: as you said, fact-checking 100%. So, um, And it's it's disappointing that I feel maybe there's not a big enough emphasis in a lot of journalism schools or journalism classes um, to to talk about this. But, you know, one thing I learned in my career is that you need to go through every single line of an article you wrote. I'm serious. Like, every single line and anything that is fact, you know, it could anything, like, basically, everything needs to be fact-checked from, like, how a city is spelled, name placement, like, anything that has... Tangible information in that sentence, you need to fact check it, um, and I—that's the number one step, right? But in terms of making sure, how do you how do you get the facts right in other ways in science journalism? You need to be upfront and, and open if you don't understand something, because you know, of course, you're not as a science journalist, you're not going to know everything in the world. Of course not. You're not going to understand necessarily everything about fossil hunting, versus diabetes research, versus um, false, you know, human psychology and false memories, even. There's so versus like um, chromosomal chromosomal abnormalities in the X Y meiosis process, right? Like you're not going to know everything, so if you don't understand something in an academic text, right? If the numbers, if the math doesn't make sense to, you need to go find that external expert and get their input. Okay. So that might be approaching a statistician a statistician who could help you understand the math. Okay. It could be finding another scientist at a different university to comment, you know, on that other um, author's publication history on that current study and whether they think there's anything problematic in that, right? It's about you taking the time to go and read other works, other texts to make sure you fully understand this, okay, and asking for help when necessary. So. Those are two really big, important steps you need to be willing to do. It's It, it involves humility, right? Um, but that's okay, because how else do you learn? And that's the whole point of science, too, right?
2: Thank you so much. Yeah, I agree. Journalists definitely have to do their due diligence. But also, the audience also has to try to differentiate between um, accurate sources, credible sources, and sources that are not necessarily that credible like for example if they're looking something up on the internet they have to make sure to read the whole thing and not just like take a couple of parts because that's the problem with journalism you have to kind of convey the entire message in the lead and the first paragraph and in the headline because most people don't read past that and so that's why it's important for journalists and the audience to try well for the journalists to try to fact check and have accurate information and for the audience to try to look at the entire picture and read everything and try to fact-check the evidence that they have in these articles.
1: I agree in that media literacy um, for the layperson, right, is something that needs to be taught from an early age. We're talking, like, elementary school, okay? Media literacy is hugely important. And yes, there is some obligation on the reader's perspective, right? On the reader's part. But... That's a lot to ask of them at the same time, right? They're busy. People have other lives, day jobs. So that's why it's most important for the journalist whose job it actually is to do this is to at least make sure they're not part of the problem, right? And, you know, we see this, though, all the time. Recently, Elon Musk, like, tweeted that <laughs> terrible um, fake news about, um, you know, Nancy Pelosi's husband Allegedly, uh, you know, having some weird illicit affair with a male prostitute, or I don't know, I don't, I don't quite understand what the whole fake news was about. But he tweeted it, and it was quickly pointed out to his attention that his source was completely uncredible, right? So, and he deleted that tweet. But that's the point, you know. You would hope. Um, readers develop media literacy and they take the time to actually do their own research but at the same time I feel like you're not you know you're expecting a lot out of people the problem with media consumption even entertainment media people are doing multiple things at once when I sit down to watch a Netflix movie I'm often on my phone or on my laptop I'm doing I'm hardly even paying attention right that's the same with consuming news you know you might be reading an article and then you start skimming it and starts scrolling down you go to a podcast you go to a video that's why it's really important for the journalists to make sure they're doing their due diligence first because you know we we need to help <laughs> the readers by making sure we've done our research and we've done all our fact checking yeah. the other thing I want to add is sometimes it's not even you know even a trusted source often gets the wrongly like, forget about news for a second even at elementary school you could be reading school textbooks about scientific discoveries or scientific information and it's only as an adult when you do your own research that you realize wait a minute this wasn't accurate or it's accurate but it's really biased or it's really framed in a in a problematic way so one of the examples i gave in my science health class recently you know, the idea of the sperm cell versus the egg cell, right? And how in school test books, they describe the process of how the egg and the sperm fuse and everything like that. And yeah, technically it's accurate, but it's presented in this very gendered biased framework. So they portray the sperm as like this active Agent right like it's a dashing knight on its way to find the damsel in distress The egg is always portrayed as like this passive lifeless lump Who's like a damsel in distress in need of a boyfriend right and it doesn't do anything and that's 100% false (laughs) Like the egg is actually a very active agent in reproduction right from the way it shoots it like bursts out of the follicle sac travels through the fallopian tube, the way it actually fuses with the sperm, right? It can actually actively reject sperm and choose which, you know, relatively choose which sperm it wants to to conceive together with. you know, the the chemicals surrounding the egg, the enzymes surrounding the egg that provided protection. And then also just how the whole he- female body really is the driving force in reproduction. Because technically, the sperm doesn't have the swimming capacity to move up <laughs> the female reproductive tract to meet the egg. It's really the female body that's pushing it on its way upward. But you don't get that in the school textbooks. You get this very male-centric, male-strong sperm, you know, focus instead. And it's it's only half the equation and it's totally inaccurately portrayed, right? And that that really frustrates me because then we start to see like that sexism seeps in even in, in like supposedly objective, scientific, factual based texts. So that's what I mean. Like even if you're doing proper media literacy and students are trusting their school textbook, you know... No wonder they get upset later on when, you know, they grow older and they don't know what to trust in the media anymore, right? So this is I think this is just really important. Like, media literacy should be taught early on, but at the same time, it's up to the scientists and it's up to the journalists to get their act together first. And I
0: totally, totally agree. That's extremely true. And, um, again, like you said earlier, like my co-host said, of course the journalist has to do their due diligence, but it's also you as a person, you should know that maybe you should not read um, an article by Daily Mail talking about how COVID-19 can lead to, I don't know, um, they say some outrageous stuff like how uh, COVID-19, I heard COVID-19 can lead to STDs or something.
2: I have never heard It
0: that. was it was on it was trending on Twitter um, oh, 2019. I didn't see that, okay. Yeah, and I and I was just like, "Oh my god, come on. Like people people who believe this, like it's time to do your research and just not believe anything you read on the internet." But speaking of COVID, um how has COVID-19 changed the science journalism realm?
1: So, I don't know if it's necessarily changed anything rather it's more like amplified it amplified existing issues within science journalism and one of the big things is again you know it's so science is supposed to be objective fact-based emotionless and also without biases but i think we really saw with COVID 19 um just how politics really can impact how science is reported in the media. So, um, especially if you have very partisan media reporting on this topic. In the US, we saw, um, you know, kind of like right-wing media taking this like very dismissive view of COVID, right? And its impact on humans, right? It's the death rate, you know, the sickness rate, whether masks are effective or whether they're detrimental to mental health and all this stuff. And then, you know, we had the more, what they would say, the more liberal media reporting in, like, a very different way, right? And it, it shouldn't be, like, this extreme polarization, right? There should just be facts. But sometimes, especially in a pandemic like that, the facts aren't apparent right away. Like, it's, scientists are working on it. They're studying it. And information can change, right? Um, but the problem is, like, opposing parties can really politicize that chaos, right, to their own advantage, to to exacerbate their own, um, their own agendas. And that's not just true with COVID. We saw that happening with climate science, you know, at this, at this point, you know, the over the majority of scientists around the world agree that climate change is caused, um, is real and that humans have a direct impact, but you still see like, um, right-wing right-wing media or you know conservative media kind of trying to debunk that narrative right even though the vast majority of of (laughs) scientific studies show climate change is real right um and you know those right-wing study those right-wing papers they find like the obscure you know minority papers scientific papers to boost their opinion right or they might not, and they just manipulate the studies they do find, like quoting it out of context or cherry-picking data, et cetera. Um, we see that happen all the time with, like, these really controversial political, and I'm using the quotation mark <laughs> hand signal, um, um, yeah, uh, these political topics that don't need to be, po- they shouldn't be politicized, but they are. So COVID-19 has just only amplified that issue in in science journals.
3: I think people definitely became more interested in science as a topic. They realized that uh, the importance, the impact of the research was having on their own lives. As journalists, we're always asked, you know, before you do a story, think of how it affects the average person. And this is what was happening with COVID. For the first time, people were realizing the power that science can have on your life. This virus affected every aspect of their lives and people that were very close to them. It affected the movement of people. This was unprecedented. So as a journalist, this was extremely newsworthy. I remember like coming on to shift at Al Jazeera and almost every story was COVID related. And at one point they were like, oh, we're getting tired of you know hearing about COVID. But then the public was like, hey, Where's the COVID story? So we were giving in there, we had to inform the public. And for the first time, there was this massive demand when it came to science and health science and health reporting. And again, that pushed us, it pushed our boundaries, it challenged us. And I think that's excellent for a journalist to be challenged and have different stories to tell. It wasn't just about you know uh, the region or Yemen, stories on Yemen that we were so used to doing every day, but there was more to it. Um, okay, this is all the questions that I had for you. Is there anything else you would like
1: to add about science journalism? Well, I would just say, keep, keep don't be discouraged. I, it can be really daunting, science journalism, especially if you're reading a scientific study in a peer-reviewed academic journal and you get a bunch of jargon thrown at you and you don't know what's going on. But take a breath, do some Googling, you know, Google each of those words you don't understand and then don't be afraid to ask for outside help from actual other scientific experts. I
3: definitely think you know the adage knowledge is power is very true. If you don't have an idea of what scientific research is being done in the world, you may, it may be as extreme as you endangering yourself or even causing harm to the world you live in. And this is why science journalism is so important and that we as journalists should take it seriously and the public themselves should too. So I do believe it's essential to showcase these kinds of stories, it breaks stereotypes and preconceived notions that the global north has about this region. And as we know, the media will always steer towards negative or sensational stories about this region. But there's so many untold stories here, especially regarding science. And with um, the country and the region's extensive budget, there are many stories the rest of the world is unaware of. As Euronews, we spoke to organizations like ExxonMobil, Kiri, Acciona, with their water projects, and we realized the extent of the developments in science here and the importance of science and research in general for the country's growth.
0: Thank you for listening to the Science Journal podcast. Don't forget to visit our website, sciencejournalqa.com, and follow us on Instagram at sciencejournal.qa. This episode of Science Journal was produced by Professor Anto Masson and his research assistants, Iman Bohr and Asman Akib. It was edited by Iman Bor and Asman Akib, and music is from Epidemic Sounds, and artwork by Iman Bohr.